You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing how mainstream media normalized President Ronald Reagan's evangelical vision for America. What were Reagan's religious views and how did they shape his politics? How did his evangelical ideas about welfare, communism, and AIDS get presented as typical American values? And what can looking at Reagan's legacy help us to understand about the Republican Party and the interplay of religion, politics, and mainstream media today? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Diane Winston. She is the author of the new book, Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming summer issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Diane. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hey, Britt. Great to talk to you. It's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. I hope it's equally nice wherever you are. Oh, thank you. It's a gray day in New York, but it's um, it's not hot, so I'll take it. So uh, the question I want to start with for our conversation today is why Ronald Reagan right now? You've written this great book about him, about religion and media at the time of his presidency. So why do you think we should look back at him, his presidency, and the media at this particular moment? Great question, Brett. One way to answer it is to say that history goes in cycles. And I would propose that between the end of World War II and the 1970s, America was in a cycle of what I would call a communitarian social welfare state. By that, I mean ideas informed by the social gospel, by the New Deal, and by the very prosperity that Americans enjoyed after the war gave us an expansive sense of possibility. Um, We could care for our neighbors. We could live well ourselves there seemed to be few clouds on the horizon and people just felt like they had a sense of social stability, economic prosperity, and all things were good. Now, this is a general sense, especially of the white public. Um, I'm speaking very specifically of people who were considered, I mean, at that time, middle-class white America was doing quite well. Things changed in the 60s and 70s. Economically, there was a recession. There was, a well, the defeat in Vietnam. There was a women's movement. There was a rise of identity politics. Mm -hmm. Um, I can go into all the things that caused social upheaval and civil unrest if you'd like me to. But basically, People lost jobs. Um, male, white male status was threatened. Mm-hmm. And the country suffered a loss of confidence. And all these things at once seemed to suggest that the ideology that held us together was no longer working. And we saw that especially when the 1980 election occurred. And Jimmy Carter, who'd been elected on 
you know, the promise of his intelligence and his ability to get things done had had so many problems. And Ronald Reagan came out and basically said, if you vote for me, things will be better. Carter has not done what he said he was going to do. We still have a recession. People don't have jobs. At that time, there were still the American hostages in Iran. And um, Reagan just said, things will be good. I will change things. And he got elected. And he did change things. He basically shifted the ideological perspective of the entire nation. And we have been living under that perspective since 1980. Hmm. That's what the book is about, how that change happened, why it happened, and what the effect of it has been. Yes, that's great. And that we're still living with the effects. That's very exactly. helpful. Thank you. So then just to give additional context for our listeners, so we're all on the same page, a big thing that you focus, of course, on is is media and how Reagan used that to his advantage in various ways. So for those who don't know or don't remember, how would you describe for us how news media was different in the 1980s than it is today? And, and maybe how did Reagan use that to his advantage? You know, we are so used to carrying the media in our pocket with Mm, our phones mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it's hard to remember there was a time when all media, well, there was print media and there was broadcast media. Um, I focus more on print media because even though um, more people probably were getting their news from television, television took its cues from print media. So in those days, there was basically the legacy media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. Big papers set the news agenda. There were smaller regional papers and there were local papers, but all the news was basically filtered through these large media um, outlets. Mm-hmm. And um, all of it reflected a certain point of view which very much was tied to the white middle to upper class status quo. And there was some alternative media. There were religious papers. There were um, language specific papers. um, There were papers for people with particular interests, but most everyone depended upon these, these newspapers for an idea of what was going on in the world. And when I say that there was a limited um, perspective from these papers, I mean that many smaller papers took articles from the big newspapers, the wire services like AP and at the time UPI also fed information to smaller papers. So really there were a lot of what we call gatekeepers, people who could control what was in the newspaper and what wasn't in a newspaper. That is totally different from today where anyone can get on social media and basically comment on the news, tell the news, criticize the news. So the kind of free form chaotic media verse that we live in today is pretty much the exact opposite of what was happening in the 1980s. Now, just as we can't control today's media um, and we can't stop things from coming out in the media, because if it doesn't come out in the New York Times, it's going to be on Politico or the Daily Beast. 
back then you could control the media. You could refuse to give interviews to, to certain reporters or certain news outlets. You could prevent people from going to certain places. In the book, I talk about the um, invasion of Granada and the military and the administration decided they did not want reporters to be on site when they went into Grenada because they didn't want the press giving out their version of events. They wanted to control the narrative. And so they could say no reporters are coming in and no reporters went into Grenada for the first couple of days of the invasion. Hmm. So Reagan had a tight control on the press that is impossible to have today. And that's why this story (laughs) is a little easier to tell because we're dealing with a limited amount of sources and we're dealing with a very different media verse. Mm, fascinating. I can't decide which is worse then or now. <laughs> you know, both both sort of frighten me in different ways. So I didn't would like us to add religion to what you're describing for us. So your book subtitle is about Reagan's evangelical vision. So I was wondering if you could first tell us a bit about Reagan's own personal religious views and practices. And then secondly, broadly speaking, before we get into more specifics, how you would describe his evangelical vision for the country. Yes, I argue in the book that Reagan was a, was a committed Christian. This has been a point of controversy among the press corps ever since he was in office. Um, People thought he wasn't religious because he didn't go to church on Sundays when he was in the White House. He says he didn't go to church because he didn't want to cause mayhem because of Secret Service and his presence. He thought it would disturb services. I tend to believe that and maybe Reagan anyway was not that much of a churchgoer, but that does not mean he wasn't a committed Christian. Reagan grew up in a very religious family. People in his hometown often thought he was going to go into the ministry. And he always spoke about the importance of faith to his life. Recently, the uh, reporter Karen Tumulty released some letters when she was doing her book on Nancy Reagan. And among them was one that Reagan wrote to his father-in-law, Loyal Davis. In the letter, Reagan explicitly says, I know you're not a man of faith, but I beg you to turn your heart to Jesus because I want you to have everlasting life. His words were so authentic, and this was a private correspondent, Mm -hmm. so concerned with his father-in-law's soul, that even if I had not read so much about Reagan's religious background, I would have become convinced that he was a sincerely religious man, because why else would he send this to his father-in-law? He was obviously concerned about the man's soul. Um, When the Reagans lived in Los Angeles, they went to Bel Air Presbyterian, which was a hub for evangelicals, conservative evangelicals at the time. When I say conservative evangelicals, I don't mean the kind we see today. I mean more like the old Republican guard. Mm -hmm. And Reagan... It was a whole way of thinking about life. It was a combination of conservative politics and conservative religion that that fed each other. And that was comfortable for him. So Reagan, yes, I believe he was a true Christian. I believe that his faith spilled into his political views. And that's one of the things I argue in the book. 
Yeah, great. So then I'd love to delve into a couple of the specific areas that you explore. And I was thinking we could start with economics, since I think many people today associate Reagan with this idea of trickle-down economics and cutting certain government spending. And as you focus on in your book, Reagan, as both governor of California and as president, work to cut welfare from millions of people. And you write that, quote, officially presented as a way to end the recession, the initiatives also coincided with Reagan's moral and religious vision of ending the welfare state, end quote. So what was his moral and religious vision when it came to families and individuals who needed government assistance through various programs? Uh, I want to highlight one other thing you say about this. Uh, you say that to support this economic worldview, Reagan, quote, often used evangelical terms that his religious base valued, but outsiders failed to hear. So what is this moral and religious vision of economics and welfare that might resonate for evangelicals at the time that Reagan used to limit and cut welfare programs? We, general readers, often think of a religious worldview as beginning and ending with Sundays at church or Saturdays at synagogue. And that worldview does not really permeate into our everyday lives. For conservative evangelicals, since the start of the 20th century, that worldview is very much part of their daily life and how they think about money, family, responsibility, time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, you know, the Bolshevik revolution and the onset of communism had a lot to do with this because communism, which prohibited a free market, which denied the existence of God, which did not allow democracy, became the absolute antithesis of what a Christian country or a Christian society would be about. And so from the 1920s onward, there were propagandists or there were influencers who spoke to the American people, often to farmers, to workers, to rural people, about the evils of communism and the idea that it was not just a political system we were mm -hmm. protecting, it was also an ideological one that took away personal responsibility. And personal responsibility and freedom, freedom, the freedom to make your own economic choices, your own political choices, your own religious choices, was integral to American Protestantism. And Reagan very much was a product of those beliefs. For him, freedom meant not having a government control your actions, or government control your economic possibilities, or a government control, you know, your religious imperatives. Reagan's evangelical vision was not just about salvation and going to heaven. It was also about creating a society where people could be free. And this translated into free markets, limited government, which mm -hmm. meant more individual democracy, and the ability to make one's own religious decisions. And when I talk about his evangelical vision, that's what I mean. 
One question is then when it comes to cutting things like welfare, I imagine there are other Christian perspectives that might support helping those, you know, that it's incumbent upon people in power or the state to help those in need. So, but it sounds like you're saying for Reagan that religiously speaking, he wants the power to be in within individuals or with families, and that if the state does it, then they're not perhaps living up to their God-given potential. Is that part of why he'd want to cut that from a religious lens? Yes, Brett, exactly so. And that's what I meant when I said earlier that for the 30 years between the end of the, of mm-hmm. the Second World War and the 70s, we lived under this more social gospel inflected um, communitarian idea where we were responsible for each other, where when Michael Harrington published his book about poverty in America, where people wanted to respond and do something, there was a collective sense of responsibility. And I also argue in the book that these are two poles of American ideology that we're always moving between. How collective are we and how individualistic are we? And Reagan believed that that social responsibility basically was a detriment to people because the government was coddling them and preventing them from developing their full potential. So in that sense, he thought he was doing a Christian thing by getting people off welfare. Now, I'm sure that no one's motivations are totally one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine people listening to me and thinking, but he called, you know, that woman a welfare queen. He called someone else a young buck. He often spoke derogatorily about people of color. And so are you sure he really cared about their personal responsibility? Um, You know, life is a mixture of all things. And yes, and yes, it's both and. Um, He could be racist, but he also could believe that he was doing the right thing for people. Right. So you also mentioned when you were speaking before a little bit about this view of communism as not just another possible economic political model, but as one that was, you know, ran in contrast from this, from Reagan's perspective to Christianity. And I got the sense from your book also that he sent, you know, felt that communism and the Soviet Union in particular were evil, you know, that he was, you know, the commander in chief in a, in a sort of epic battle of good against evil. So could you tell us a bit about um, his particular take on communism in the Soviet Union and why you think maybe that contributed to his popularity? I mean, he was reelected here in the U.S. Reagan's take on communism and his take on Russians and the Russian leadership were somewhat we now know at odds with each other because of recent scholarship. Recent scholarship suggests that Reagan did not have a lot of personal animus against all Russian leaders, and he was very much in favor of finding ways to work with them. But he detested communism, and he believed that a strong front was the best way to proceed in the discussions about nuclear Mm -hmm. weapons and and proliferation. 
he believed that communism was a threat to both the American way of life and to the Christian way of life. And he believed that, as he said in his 1983 speech to the National Association of Evangelicals, that the Soviet Union was an evil empire. I don't believe he was saying that for rhetorical reasons. I think he really believed it was an evil empire. At that point in time, I think the American public probably was living with contradictory ideas. On the one hand, many Americans, a majority of Americans, wanted a nuclear freeze. They did not want weapons to be spread around Europe. They did not want more weapons being built. They wanted a nuclear freeze, which Reagan was not willing to support at that point. Pragmatically, Americans believed we need to negotiate with the Russians, with the Soviet Union, and we need to stop nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it was close enough to the Cold War, and we had recently been defeated by communists in Vietnam, that most Americans did not feel warmly towards communism. They didn't like the Soviet Union. So Reagan coming down strong on the issue had played to different perspectives among the populace. And it did address this both and issue of how do we feel about this other superpower? Mm -hmm. which is, you know, on the one hand, we want to work with him. On the other hand, you know, we want nothing to do with him. I don't think most Americans at the time thought of the Soviet Union as an evil empire, and they thought that was rhetorically a bit much. But it did play well to Reagan's religious base. Interesting. Well, that is a, a good connector to something else that you raise in your book, this idea of Reagan viewing evil in the world as a real thing. And uh, so the, another topic that you raise in the book is the AIDS crisis, which happened under his watch as president. And uh, awareness of what we now call HIV and AIDS started in his first term and then devastatingly exploded throughout his two terms as president. How did religious ideas and rhetoric enter public political discussions and responses to the medical AIDS epidemic under his presidency? Reagan seems to have made a decision not to address the AIDS crisis in its early days. And there's speculation that he made that decision because coming from Hollywood, he knew many gay people and homosexuality was not, you know, a big deal to him. Or if it, if, it, if it was a big deal on one level, he was comfortable with his friends who were gay. And he couldn't come out and say, gee, I support homosexuality, because that would have been politically unfeasible at the time. He was a Republican. He was seen as a conservative. Um, but he probably did not want to come out and say gays are bad people and this is the wrath of God. And so he chose to stay silent. However, Reagan had developed several religious proxies during the 1980 campaign. He had gone to Dallas and told evangelicals, you can't endorse me, but I will endorse you. And he found a lot of support among the burgeoning televangelists like mm -hmm. Falwell, Pat, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Jimmy Swaggart, 
um, he validated them because he shared their message about the importance of a religious perspective. And they validated him by saying he's a politician who gets us, basically. And by the time he was elected, um, Reagan was seen as receiving a lot of support from those religious groups. Jerry Falwell claimed the moral majority had tipped the scales. Now, that's unlikely. And it's probably, um, it's obviously not true, but it is true that an evangelical bloc, which had begun coalescing under Carter, now had become firmer with Reagan and with this new televangelist presence supporting him. No one was that surprised when, you know, a couple of weeks into his first term, Reagan invited Falwell and other evangelicals to the White House um, and warmly received them and, you know, talked about whatever they talked about. Now, this is important because the public began to see Falwell and others as religious proxies for Reagan because the two became identified in the public mind. And as 1983 wore on and AIDS became a more critical issue as more people were getting sick and dying, and it began looking like this was not just confined to the, to the gay community, Falwell began speaking out against gay people. In fact, his July 4th campaign in 1983, his I Love America campaign, also took issue with homosexuality and the fact that a gay plague was threatening America and the fact that Americans had to crack down on gay behavior. And Reagan didn't come out and say he disagreed with it. He said mm. nothing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, if you think about it, that Falwell launched this on July 4th. <laughs> and that that symbolically was a tie-in of religion and politics, right? And almost saying, if you are a patriot, if you believe in our country, you will also see the harm this gay plague is doing. And Falwell did say things, you know, this is a punishment from God and heterosexuals who don't do something about it are also being punished by God. So while Reagan did not specifically address AIDS until I think his second term and late in his second term, um, he allowed this, he allowed others to put forward these ideas about AIDS and about gays as his proxies. Again, I don't think Reagan necessarily shared these feelings in the same way Falwell expressed them, but neither did he deny them because they played to the base. You know, a lot of the deep evangelicals who supported him were very anti-gay and they did see AIDS as a reckoning from God. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'd, I want to shift uh, to sort of um, think about all these things that you've been describing for us and, and bring some of it into the present day, if possible, to get your take on if Reagan set into motion some of today's political dynamics, especially in the Republican Party, or if you think he would be aghast by some of it. And I want to pull out something that you write in your book. You write that, quote, 
At the heart of the American religious imaginary that Ronald Reagan helped promote is the conviction that God chose America, resulting in Americans receiving God's greatest blessings, freedom and democracy, end quote. So when I read in 2023 that God's greatest blessings are freedom and democracy, I personally find myself making comparisons to the present day where Reagan's political descendants are legislating to curtail various freedoms from reproductive freedom or diverse gender freedom, freedom to not have books banned, etc., and democracy from the attempted coup on January 6th to election deniers to voter suppression. So I just don't see a big push for God-given freedom and democracy to every American. I'm curious, where would you put Reagan in that story? You know, what did he mean when he talked about God choosing America and giving freedom and democracy to Americans? And where do you see, you know, it, it, would he be aghast by some of these things or it feels like right in step with what his legacy would be doing? Oh, Brett, that is a question. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I think it's both and. I think all of this was set in motion. All of what we're living with today was set in motion by the ideological shift that Reagan enabled. And this idea of individualism, this idea of free market, this idea of, um, you know, in his second term, he repealed the fairness clause, which led to talk radio on the right and Fox News so many things that change the civility and the social responsibility of this nation were set in motion by things Reagan did or things he believed and that became normalized. After spending 10 years reading about Reagan and thinking about Reagan, he would never have been my candidate. I remember feeling like gobsmacked when he was elected and not in a good way. Um, he doesn't stand for the politics I stand for, but I do believe he would never have countenanced what's happened in his name. I don't believe, perhaps he would have been okay with this crazy market capitalism and you know the rise of billionaires. Maybe he could have accepted that, but the kind of curtailment of individual freedom, the January 6th coup attempt, that's not what Reagan was about. And I think he would be horrified. I mean, he worked with Democrats when he had to. He didn't sit there and make up lies and say terrible things about his Democratic opponents. Um, he was basically a man who believed in the system as it was. He just didn't like some of the ways the system kept individuals bound, either politically or economically. So yeah, I think he would have been disgusted by Trump. He would have been horrified by the Republican leadership that's basically making the country ungovernable now. Because Reagan believed in democracy. He believed in the United States. He did not believe in a theocracy. He did not believe in an oligarchy. He believed in civility. He was, a, you know, even people who didn't agree with him said he was a nice man when you came down to it. And um, I don't know if you could say that about Marjorie Taylor Greene mm -hmm. or Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. They don't seem like nice people. 
So, yes, I believe that we all should read my book because we need to understand how we got from here to there. And Reagan was pivotal in that change, but I don't hold Reagan fully accountable for everything that happened. Um, You know, a lot of people made a lot of decisions in the last 40 years that got us from here to there. Yeah, that's very fair. And it is true that while reading your book, I certainly, you know, I was constantly making comparisons. And so um, it's, it, but it's very helpful for you to hear what he would be uh, mortified by, even as I don't feel sympathy for him because so much of it, as you have described, uh, he sets into motion with his political power. So for our last question, I want to return to talking about mainstream media and their role in in what in normalizing um, politicians' perspectives, so what should mainstream media be doing to avoid normalizing religiously infused political perspectives, if anything at all? Perhaps that's not even something you think they should be doing. But I'm curious if having considered how the media normalized Reagan's evangelical vision, what are your recommendations for media today? I think the 2016 election of Trump was a real wake-up call to the mainstream media about how they can normalize a crazy person. Yes. And although everyone, you know, began wringing their hands after that and saying they'd never do it again and they would talk to real Americans and they wouldn't let a buffoon run their headlines, they still do. And so... I, I mean, mainstream media, which people forget, I mean, all media to that, to some extent, is corporate. That's um, right. Meaning they have to make money. They have to make money. And even, you're right, and even those sites that aren't corporate, you know, are are funded by subscribers or by mm-hmm. philanthropists. Mm-hmm. And it's all about making money. And as long as sensationalism, scandal, cynicism, are, you know, catnip to the public, we're going to get a certain kind of reporting. And right at the top of this, we talked about how much the media has changed, but in some ways it hasn't changed at all. And in fact, it's gotten more problematic because now there are more outlets that have more sensationalized and more, you know, crazy stories in them. Um, I think it's incumbent on all of us to read a variety or watch a variety of media sources to try to get the truth and to always be skeptical about what we're reading. You know, recently the whole brouhaha about the debt ceiling and the way the media reported it just really horrified me. You know, no one in their right mind thought the debt ceiling was, you know, that it was going not to be addressed. And yet we spent days reading headlines about how this was such a big issue. Whereas we don't read about what's happening with the homeless, what's happening, you know, mm-hmm. pollution worldwide, what's happening with women, with women's rights being endangered. Mm-hmm. And just to go back a tad to what we were discussing before about the religious rights reaction to gays and AIDS. I mean, we're seeing that today. The targeting of the trans community is just, you know, a way to get people whipped up. Not only it's going to start with trans, but it's going to go straight to gays and then to women and people of color. So none of these ideas are different. And the media 
I think, does not make the historical connections to show people that these things come up and up again because the reporting is incomplete, the reporting is short-sighted, and it's not as cute as like little kittens. I find it ironic I teach at a journalism school sometimes. I don't think journalists themselves oftentimes have the wherewithal to make the changes that are needed because they themselves are cogs in a corporate machine. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> um, if, I, I lose, I, if I lose my tenure, I'm coming after you, Brett. <laughs> I don't think that will happen because it's an excellent book and a very helpful book for thinking about not only Reagan and religion and politics, but also about how we consume media and 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 then therefore we all have a role in, in what's happening. So thank you for that and thank you for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Diane Winston. You can find an excerpt from her book, Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision in the Revealer's upcoming summer issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of Writing the American Dream at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing Muslim women who use female pronouns for God. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.